The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 14th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Christian history, in Christian theology, and really even in the pages of Scripture itself, there is this constant tension. It's never fully resolved, at least in the minds of many hearers to this day. And it's led to all manner of groups sort of falling down on one side or the other of this issue. This tension is over the exact relationship between God's grace and our responsibilities. Where exactly do all the lines begin and end? And in many ways, this was kind of the question of the entire Reformation. But rather than litigate history all over again, I simply want to consider some of the difficulties in our texts today. For on the one hand, Peter speaks about the saving powers of baptism. He says, baptism, which the flood uh, prefigured, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Right, so as Lutherans, we look at that text and we see, aha, we see the sovereign grace of God working in the life of the believer. We see God working through means and sacraments through water and the word. He is doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Right? And then in our gospel from John, Jesus says, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by the Father. Now this seems to have kind of a different tone, doesn't it? A tone which isn't about what God has supernaturally done for you, but rather what you are to do for God. Perhaps even so that you will be worthy to be loved by God. Given what seem to be these different tones then, the exact relationship of, of, of our relationship then with God is sort of called into question. Are we passive recipients of God's love? Or are we active obeyers of the law of God, which will merit God's love? Even today, those questions continue to divide 
the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformed traditions. We still have not bridged that fundamental divide over this relationship of grace and obedience. Even within Protestant camps, mainly those, say, in the more free-will Baptist uh, tradition and those who fall on the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, even they do not find common ground on this question, and the debates continue to rage. Well, let's take a quick step back and ask some very fundamental questions. Questions, to be honest, I, I don't ask very much in sermons. But let's just consider, what do we really think is the nature of God? What does God know? What is his relationship to both time and knowledge? Does God know all future events that will take place? And if he does, does he possess a kind of mere foreknowledge of what free creatures will do with their free will? Or do events take place in time because God has decreed them to take place? If God knows all things, does that mean that he knows who his elect are before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 certainly seems to suggest? Or does he only know who his elect people are because he knows which people will freely choose him? Well, you can see how there might be some tension and debate around questions like that. And well-meaning Christians come to the scriptures, they look at the same scriptures, and they come up with different understandings of them. Some argue that essentially men and women, of course, possess free will. They possess a freedom of the will that if used to be obedient to God, then the blessings of God and election will follow. This was the clear fight of the fight uh, of the Reformation uh, with Rome, who argued that, in fact, men did possess that capacity. Whereas Luther was saying, no, people are only capable of what they are able to do according to their nature. And as men are sinful creatures... Their only freedom, really, is to commit sin. So while some argue that it is not because of our obedience that God loves us and chooses us, rather, it is because God loves us and chooses us that we are obedient. It's a question of cause and effect. If you could summarize the Reformation down to this one question, this would be it. Do we obey because we are loved, or are we loved because we obey? You can see that Luther was trying to say the gospel frees us to be obedient. We obey because we're loved by God. The position of Rome was, if you want to be loved by God, you need to be obedient. And so what's really being debated then is just how active our life of faith is or how passive our life of faith is. Let me tell you, this can be a very delicate balance to try to answer, especially from the pulpit. Because on the one hand, I want you to clearly understand 
that you cannot earn your own salvation. There is nothing you can do to earn the grace of God. If you could, it wouldn't be grace. It would be mere justice. God has graciously paid the necessary price for your salvation, and in the waters of baptism, Lutherans believe he has given you promises that he will never take back even if you revoke them, even if you deny them, even if you walk away. Now, we just had a debate. It's on YouTube. You can watch it with a a friendly Baptist. And that was a position that he refused to accept. On the other hand, we would say we are still governed by God's good and holy laws. And they're summarized as love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said those. We still live under that law. Let's look at a few more verses then, or these verses from John's Gospel with that as background. The question then, because we're talking about commands and obedience, and sometimes we can get uncomfortable when those things are put together, you know, the love of God and command and obedience, these things seem like they shouldn't be together. So here's the question. Are these words of command? In John 14, is Jesus telling us what we must do to be followers of Jesus? Or is he saying what we will do because we are followers of Jesus? You see the difference? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I would say this is what is called a descriptive passage of Scripture rather than a prescriptive passage. Passage. That's a very important distinction we need to understand. Descriptive means it's describing the nature of a thing. Prescriptive is saying you will or ought to do this. For example, you shall not murder. That is prescriptive. Okay. God's people do not murder people. Uh, that is descriptive. And I believe this is a descriptive text. This text describes what followers of Jesus will do rather than saying, this is what you must do in order to be considered my follower. And that's good news. Because if perfect obedience is required to be considered a follower of Jesus, we will all fall terribly short. But Jesus even goes one step further. He says, listen, I'm going to leave you, but I am going to give you an advocate. The Spirit is going to come, and the Spirit is going to be in you. And you will be able to obey. You will want to obey, because the Spirit of God will be working in your life, and it will, in a way, kind of animate you to do what pleases God. Maybe this relationship of descriptive, prescriptive, of being loved by God and responding with obedience, there's a song that came to mind this week, And it reminded me, it's a wonderful rhetorical way to answer this question. It's not in our hymnal, so we never sing it. But if you grew up in the Lutheran church and you ever had the blue hymnal, the With One Voice supplement to the LBW, I think it's in that, and I think we sang it regularly. It's considered a Quaker song, but in fact it was written by a Baptist minister. I learned that this week researching it. And it really summarizes this relationship well. It's called, How Can I Keep From Singing? Anybody know that? How Can I Keep From Singing? You ever heard it? No? A few of you? Yeah. Um, 
If you Google the phrase, a whole bunch of versions will come up, and including they keep recording it in some, some new versions. Here are the opening lyrics. My life flows on an endless song above, above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far-off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear the music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Indeed, I think that's what Jesus is saying. If you follow me, how can you keep from singing? Metaphorically, rhetorically, how can you keep from being obedient? Those two are so utterly connected that obedience becomes a matter of habit. The ease of a changed heart and a compulsion that needs no motivation. When Jesus speaks of obedience, he is assuming a Christian audience. That's important too. Or an audience that already desires to follow him. So it makes all the sense in the world for him to speak of loving him as being obedient or as bringing about obedience. And of course it doesn't mean that mere obedience makes you a follower of Jesus any more than a doer of the law makes you a lover of God. Jesus is critical of those who are following the letter of the law to the nth degree, but their hearts are, 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 are not full of love for God. What does he say about them? You're like a whitewashed tomb, beautiful on the outside, but inside is nothing but death, right? Jesus is saying, though, that true faith does produce true obedience, even if mere obedience is not evidence of true faith. You see, those are the kinds of things that you have to hold in tension, right? Where, yes, if you love Jesus, you'll be obedient to the law of God. But there are lots of people who are superficially obedient to the law of God who don't actually love Jesus or love God. Now, in a similar vein, let's consider this passage from 1 Peter. Uh, If you have it downloaded or have it in front of you, you might consult it. I'm going to try to run through it quickly. Again, we hear a passage about doing good. He's speaking about those Christians to whom he is writing who are suffering, and he's encouraging them. Continue to do good in in the light of suffering. It's a benefit to you. And our first verse today reads, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? And Peter goes on. Again, he is assuming that his audience is Christian already. So this is an in-house conversation. Uh, He tells them to continue to sanctify Christ as Lord, that is, set apart Christ as your Lord. And then the famous apologetic verse that follows be prepared to offer an apologia or a defense for the hope that is in you. Because guess what? If you're hopeful and everyone else isn't, people should rightly ask, what's wrong with you? You're different. Why why, why are you so different? Ah, well, let me tell you my apologia. Let me give you the defense for the hope that is within me through Christ. He then speaks about Jesus, this bizarre phrase from which we get this descent into hell in our creed. It's one of the only passages that references this at all. This uh, about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison who died during the time of Noah, presumably for their disobedience towards God. 
When mentioned that Noah and the eight in total were saved by water and that our baptism likewise saves us, or he then mentions that, and now we come to this key passage I mentioned earlier about our baptism, and we're right back to those questions of this active or passive uh, understanding of our relationship to God. Peter writes, again, baptism, which the flood prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. And likely what he's referencing there is that in the Old Testament law, there were many bathings or washings of purification. You, you had to wash yourself before you could offer a sacrifice and so forth. And I think that's what he's saying is I'm not talking about baptism, which removes dirt from the body, superficially cleans you, but it's what you can appeal to, to God, to have a clean or pure or good conscience. So again, your baptism is that which you can always return to because Lutherans believe there are promises there that God never breaks. So Now some people, though, they look at this passage and they say, aha, there you have it, baptism saves. Do the act, it does the job. The mere act of it, like the mere act of obedience, is what makes you a Christian. But just as Jesus assumed that his audience was full of people who desired to follow him, so too does Peter. So when he is saying that baptism saves you, he is saying to those people who are followers of Jesus, to those who are Christians, baptism saves you. So does baptism save? Well, yes, of course, it saves those who trust in God with their very life. We are saved by faith through grace, apart from outward works of obedience, including baptism. And those who are saved are, as a description of the Christian life, obedient. Metaphorically speaking, how can you keep from singing? So I'd like to resolve this tension. I'd like to end the debate. If I could do that, I could write the book on it, and we could all retire. I'd, I'd share the wealth, and we'd... We'd all uh, go safely home forever. But I, I just want to suggest that when you look at these texts, that the answer is, yes, of course, Christians are obedient. What Jesus said is true. Those who love God are obedient to the law of God. And it's also true that mere obedience doesn't make you a follower of God. You've got to hold those things together. And also... Because you're a sinner, you won't ever be able to be perfectly obedient. And that's okay, because when we're Christians, we possess the Spirit, and the desire for our obedience will grow as the Spirit grows within us. So when you hear this language of obedience, my concern for you is that, well, you don't let it concern you. Obedience is what you will do when you love Jesus. Love will proceed, precede, rather, obedience. And why would you love Jesus? Well, how could you not? Amen.